name is Elmo, and I'm looking for the word on the street. What's the word on the street? Obfuscate. What does obfuscate mean? It means to make something unclear or confusing. To be evasive. Darken, puzzle, confound, befuddle. When you obfuscate something, it means you overcomplicate it. What is example of something that is obfuscate? Jose Chung's from outer space. The instructions which accompany any government paperwork. Keep listening for the word obfuscate on today's episode of X-Files Talk X-Files. Obfuscate. That's the word on the street. <laughs>
I love and, it. And, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's my favorite, but like it's, at the it's same the time, it's so thing. disgusting. Yeah, Abby's super I revolted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's I actually find that an endearing part of the episode, which is kind of funny, because I think a lot of people look at it and are like, "Oh, these dumb rednecks, they're out here having incest." It also portrayed it in a way that it was like that need to keep the American dream alive in their brain, you know, to keep that culture, which I think is something right. that a lot of people struggle with. And so it was a weird take on it, but it was kind of interesting that it was there. Cause I mean, they really could have pushed it and just said, Oh, these are a bunch of dumb rednecks. It's not about the family. It's just, they're trying to keep their lineage going cause they're stupid. But I think it kind of pushed it beyond that. I mean, it shows what people will do, the the amount of violence that they're capable of to try to maintain a sense of their place in the world. And their way of life, yeah. Right. And I mean, I think that plays so well in this. And I mean, the fact that it was so dark, I mean, it just showed how far X-Files could go. It doesn't have to be, you know, do campy things and it doesn't have to, I mean, it can do really deep stories that cover really dark areas of society. Yeah, it covers quite a lot on that spectrum of things that you've talked about, you know, because it does hit upon the point of these are free brothers who are just acting like animals, you know, and that's quite explicit on a number of occasions throughout the episode. But at the same time, you're right, it does go a, a lot deeper than that. And, you know, if you've, if you've read some of the essays and stuff about this particular episode, there's quite a few references out there to how this is quite similar to what David Lynch does in a lot of his films, where you juxtapose the sense of the American dream and the American nightmare. And you really do have that in this small town. You have, you know, people go to bed at night, they don't even bother locking their doors. It, you have that perfect, idyllic sort of small town America. But then you also have this horrible violence and everything going on inside it as well. But at the same time, the Peacock family... Mm-hmm. that's kind of their dream as to what they're doing. They're living out the life that they want to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you look at the family, I mean, really, you you know, under normal circumstances, you want them just to go ahead and die out, and that would just be it. But, I mean, they're struggling to keep, you know, an heir and keep their family going. And it's just, it's very hard sometimes, I think, at the beginning of the episode to, like, relate to that but you know when the mother comes out and she's kind of like this freak of nature but you can still kind of get what she's saying and see how that relates i mean it's 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 really interesting because i mean it explains why humans you know are involved in all sorts of war and torture and all these horrible things and i think it touches on that where it really could have just been like well these are horrible people that do despicable things you know so i think that's really where it did a great job I like how Scully, ever the skeptic, is also skeptical of the American dream. You know, Mulder in the beginning, you know, he's playing with the baseball, he's, you know, talking, he's talking to her about how if he wants to settle down and and live a life, he wants it to be in a place like this. And Scully is very much skeptical of him, like, this is not your life. I mean, this is not something you would be able to just... I mean, she tells him he couldn't do without a cell phone for two minutes, you know? I mean, she's even ever the skeptic when it comes to his kind of dreaming of living out here in the country and and raising a family. So I thought that was um, funny in that it's not just being skeptical of aliens and otherworldly things. She's clearly skeptical of, of normal kind of, you know, everyday things as well. And it's weird also because even though the episode is so daunting and it's like, 
okay, it's all the juxtapositions that it's happening and all that stuff. At the same time, yeah, talking about normal life for them and what used to be normal for them before. Like Mulder talks about whenever he used to play with Samantha and it wasn't anything related about like, you know, abductions. It was like just like their mm-hmm. normal lives. And, you know, that they bring they even bring up, you know, the possibility of like having kids and all this stuff. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's a really weird way of like, oh, we're getting all this information about these characters that we never got before, but we're getting it, you know, in the midst of all these events that are really revolting. Yeah. So yeah. That are not like supernatural things, you know. It's interesting yeah. in that they seem so much more relatable, and it seems more kind of realistic in a lot of ways in in terms of this episode compared to maybe some of the other fantastic elements of other episodes. Um, so I don't know. Home is just it's it's dark, but it's a good dark. I mean, it's kind of from a, a story perspective, a character development perspective, it's it's the kind of episode that I love and and really for television was probably quite a bit ahead of its time being that early. Um, it's the same kind of episode that draws people into shows like Hannibal today. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I love Home. I love it so much, I really do. Um, the it, it's really got fantastic elements, and then probably one of the more you know, of course, action-packed sequences is when Mulder and Scully are kind of storming the house, and um, you you see him kick down doors and kind of you know poke around with guns. It was just set up in such a way and filmed in such a way that it I don't know. It's one of my fantastic scenes of the two of them, or one of my favorite scenes of the two of them together, kind of casing out uh, a building. Yeah, Kim Mann has directed this episode and, you know, he's known for doing a lot of the more gory horror scripts that came mm-hmm. through uh, the show. But actually, you know, for all of the violence and all of the despicable acts in this episode, it is actually one of the darkest episodes visually mm-hmm. of the whole series. I don't think you ever really get to see either or any of the three brothers' faces clearly. There is just so much... shrouded in darkness and in the shadows throughout this episode that you know and that's what the Mm exiles tends to do really really well is that it's more horrific because you don't see it yeah well it's interesting because um garrett actually did a um an article on this several years ago where he was talking about the art direction in this episode uh for xfn and he made mention, and Garrett, you might remember this as I'm kind of talking about it, but he, he talked about actually the use of dark and light. Um, because inside the Peacock home, everything is very dark. And light is used very minimally to you know enhance certain parts of it. But outside of the Peacock home, it's one, it's, from a, a lighting perspective, it's one of the brighter episodes um, where you see Mulder and Scully. It's... it's uh, green grass and sunny days and kind of this perfect Andy Griffith kind of place um, juxtaposed to that kind of very dark, um, you know, kind of secretive part of, of the Peacock's existence. So I don't know, Garrett, do you remember writing any of that? <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, I can see it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that definitely plays a part in it. But I mean, it's interesting because I think there's 
an attempt to make it as you know their family as dark as possible. But I mean, it's just I guess I didn't really understand some of it because it's funny because like the house is what in Pennsylvania, and they're supposed to have been around since like pre Civil War era. Yeah, it so, doesn't have any electricity. I don't think right, right. house. I, mean, I always thought it was interesting because it's kind of like this idea. It's Andy Griffith. But I mean, Andy Griffith and all that. I mean, you take that, you know, that system and you think, oh, it's Southern. But it's not really even occurring in the South. It's occurring in the North. Mm-hmm. They do refer to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. Oh, they do. They do, yeah. Hmm. Well, they built their house in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> Pennsylvania's far, far away. Yeah. That's true. That's it is in Pennsylvania, yeah. You're right, it does take place in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Maybe we should road trip there. I mean, it's home Pennsylvania. It can't be Let's a real place. Let's find out. Perfect. Let's Google this. <laughs> no, Googling it right great. now. <laughs> That's a waste of a Google. There is a city called Home, Pennsylvania. It's an unincorporated village located in Rain Township, which is in Indiana County, Pennsylvania. It is not tracked by the U.S. Census Bureau. But it does have its own zip code. Really? Okay. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh, it actually mentions the X-Files in the uh, Wikipedia from home Pennsylvania. It says really? the town became famous as the setting for an episode of the television show The X-Files entitled Home. Originally aired in October 11, 1996. In the episode, Home is depicted as an idyllic Mayberry um, with a reclusive local family dark secret. Although the episode was set in the town, it was actually filmed near Fort Langley, British Columbia. Huh. See, that's not something you want to be famous for, because I would definitely not live there. I know. Even I know, that it, uh, I mean, I know it's a TV show, and I know that the story has nothing to do with that town, but on the off chance that it could happen, I'd rather not be involved. Huh. That's so weird. There's, like, yeah, I can't I- even find... There's no census status, so, like, I can't even find um, any, any sort of, like, population statistics or anything. Do they have a Cadillac dealership there? oh my gosh there is an auto dealership called griffith auto sales i kid you not griffith auto sales (laughs) it's on highway 85 all right well now that we've googled like dr scully i think we're good we're good on that one i don't know we we could talk about home for hours but there's so many really good episodes for tonight's podcast that absolutely you know oh yeah i mean there's definitely a lot you could talk about we haven't covered but i mean it goes you could go pretty crazy with it i mean yeah just when you think of like the role of the female in this episode it's like scully looks so good as a female character because all the other females are treated so poorly you know i mean the sheriff's wife is like this weak little woman and she has to watch her husband die and it's, it's like oh she's so scared and weak then uh, the peacock's mother is just a sex machine essentially i mean she's just a bag to like produce children <laughs> It's like, it's, I mean, Scully is the only actual woman from a civilized world. I mean, it just, it's, it's really interesting you, because you do you make try it. To, well, I mean, they try to make it like this is a perfect community, but it's still that old concept that like women can't do their own thing and be strong willed. And yeah, I mean, it's just such a funny take on it because I mean, in a lot of ways, um, you know, that occurs in so many episodes in the X-Files where they're very set strong women and then the rest are all just back to being their weak selves and this one just i mean goes to town with it yeah you make an interesting point about the sheriff's wife hiding under the bed i could never in a million years see scully 
hiding under the bed if Mulder was being attacked. Oh, no. Yeah. Maybe not. So. I mean, I think that just goes to that point that, you know, it's like the, the sheriff is like idealized as this strong man that protects the town. Yet yeah. It's the only thing that's happened poorly in the town in forever. It's the first yeah. <laughs> set of murders that he has to investigate. I mean, hmm. it's stripping away the idea of civilization and it's, you know, taking humans back to that animal, instinctual, you know, primal sense you know it really really is oh yeah i mean i think it's taking away the illusion of civilization this idea that we do have this community of people that are all gracious to give up their free time and help each other out and stuff i mean and people do do those things but underneath all that everybody's capable of horrendous things and you know that idea that we're going to have communities where everybody can leave their houses unlocked and stuff is a wonderful thought but some people suck. Uh, on that cheerful note, <laughs> <laughs> let's transition over to the second episode uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, Talico, which is um, another episode from the same formula as Squeeze. This is another genetic mutant that needs to kill in order to survive. And this time around, it's an albino African immigrant who needs melanin, which uh causes skin pigmentation. This is actually an episode that deals with um, a theme that crops up a few times throughout season four, uh, the idea of uh, xenophobia, uh, racism, and even immigration, in a sense, um, along with El Mundo Gira and Kaddish, to an extent. Um, This is also notable for being one of the few, if possibly even the only, non-mythology episode to have the tagline changed. From I Want to Believe, it's the Sieve in Vagal and Obfuscate here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was the last episode to be broadcast at 9pm on a Friday. Because oh. Millennium came along and this got bumped to Sunday night. Yep. So what do we think about Tlico? It's I, I don't think it's one of the greater episodes. And <laughs> no. it, as I said, it's treading similar ground to Squeeze and Too Shy. and Yeah, it's very similar ground. Um, you know, it was... Forgettable. <laughs> yeah, kind I mean, of. Just, which... It was very heavy hand. Like, I, I felt like Home was so well written and that you could take all these things from it. Whereas this one was very heavy handed in what they were trying to say. Yeah. It was and kind it of just, just served up to you. you know? Right. It like, wasn't here you go, here's what it all as is. As well as it could have been done. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we first mentioned that we were going to do this, I was like, I don't even remember this episode at all. And so we yeah. had to go back and watch it, and I was like, I can see why I don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, what I think yeah. about it is that it was, it was really heavy-handed, just like you said, but also, like, like most of the time, symbolism in the X-Files is a lot more subtle, but mm-hmm. this was, like, really on the nose. Like, okay, yeah. so this is, you know, it, it's a ghost, and, it, it, you know, it's a ghost of wind, and all the stuff that they start to talk about, about the fable that they're talking about, and... Oh, okay. So the attack, the first attack, happens in a plane because it's supposed to be flying, and it's like the symbolism wasn't all there. Like, okay, yeah. I get that you're working with this material, but it's not. You know, it could have been a lot better. And while I agree that okay, the fable has a lot to do with African culture and all that stuff, I feel like it shouldn't have stopped there. Like it, it 
I mean, it kind of felt, I, I don't want to say it was racist, but it, it kind of felt racist at some point. Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm white as it comes, but I still have melatonin on me, so or melanin on me. So it's not, I mean, yeah, okay, fine, you're going to go for the people that really have more, but why only yeah. that? You only yeah. want to get, you know. Other a, people have melanin. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. They could have attacked yeah. any race. Anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, I mean, I can see the connection to Squeeze, but I mean, even, like, from the concept, it's, it's similar to, like, Hungry, but, like, Hungry just did such a better job of making you, like, feel, like, that desire, you know, that they're trying to manage. I mean, that he can be a good person. Oh, I even though it's about like, Hungry. He's got to do something yeah. horrible, you know? And, I mean, and Hungry was, I mean, much later, obviously. Yeah. But handled it so much better that's true i mean it they can you can go subtle and still get a really good concept through whereas this one was just like hey we did an episode about some black people yeah and that, I, mean, I mean they and it's it's funny because they've had some really strong black characters and this was just i don't know why they chose to do this one to be honest i mean it just it could have been a lot better <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, probably the most memorable part of this episode is the ending where, um, you know, Mulder gets the dart, you know, in his neck um, and is going to be the next target. And then Scully's crawling into the air vent to kind of get him. And the the most memorable part for probably, especially the shipper uh, in someone, is the fact that she comes to his rescue. You know, she's the one that, you know, shoots at the guy and pulls Mulder out of the you know, vent and saves his life. So that's, of the entire episode, that's probably what most X-Files fans remember about it. Not so much the, um, you know, the fable, not so much the, the any sort of intricate storytelling, but kind of that one scene towards the end. That's definitely the first thing I remembered when I saw the episode name. Yeah, the main thing I can think of is, you know, just the, you know, the those strong visuals of the, albino africans and um then they're a bit where he like pulls the the pipe out of his throat or something yeah yeah that you know that bit but uh yeah otherwise largely forgettable yeah um one bit of trivia the airplane in the opening scene is the same plane that they built for um tempest fugit and max oh well <laughs> there you go the more you better, know. better to use it more than once. It's really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were going. We've got to use this a lot of times. Okay. Up next is Unrue. This uh, episode deals with a serial killer who is able to create photographs. Uh, things that he sees in his head appear on film uh, when they get developed. Photos are of what's in his mind, except he doesn't really know that he has this ability. And, uh, well, he's uh, quite disturbed himself <laughs> anyway. Um, I want to just talk a, bit, a little bit about the genesis of the idea of this episode because it's based on the real-life case of uh, Ted Sirios, who could create photographs. And I believe that, is it Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz were trying to get a movie going based on him at one point? Somebody at 10.13 was... <laughs> remember yeah it might have been chris I don't, I don't remember hearing this from frank maybe it was chris carter i think because it was a script they had sort of knocked about or discussed for quite a few years 
and I'm guess stemming from research that preceded this episode. And I think there was talk after the show ended that they were going to try and put the into de- put it into development, but uh, nothing ever happened with it. This is you know a, a good episode. I enjoyed this one the first time I saw it, and I've revisited it several times, and mm-hmm. it it holds up. There's a few really nice moments in there, particularly the bit where Scully is at the. Uh, at the place it's being decorated and they realize that the killer is somebody who is tall or who wants mm-hmm. to be tall and she looks across and sees the guy yeah. on, on the plaster and stilts. Mm-hmm. That's a brilliant bit. And the, the main guy in it, the guy who plays Gerald Schnauz, his eyes are just friggin' amazing. Yeah. The way they just dash back and forth. Great yeah. eye acting there. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I really, um, you know, this is one of those episodes where the supporting cast really kind of helps make it. Um, Gerald Schnauz's character is great in that, you know, he's obviously, he's killing people, but he doesn't, he thinks he's helping them. You know, he thinks he's trying to save them from, you know, what he calls the howlers. Um, And you you feel bad for him uh, in one regard and then obviously he's doing these really horrible you know terrible things and there's this um you know these moments between him and and scully in the episode which are which are really amazing uh it's like you mentioned when you know she's being told that you know it's it's either a man who is tall or wants to be tall and her eyes kind of lift and she sees him across the way and and it hits her that okay this is this is obviously, you know, the guy that I'm supposed to be looking for. Um, and then the fact that Mulder figures out how to get to her when she, of course, ends up being, you know, stuck with a hypodermic needle and taken. Mulder's looking at the photograph to try and figure out, you know, where she is. And there's the series of, you know, where he finally realizes that, oh, okay, these are, you know, these are the headstones. And then, of course, he's putting all of that together. And then when he gets there, he's, you know, walking around the graveyard, like what, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing what I'm needing to be seeing, um, sees the Winnebago, goes over there, sees the, um, you know, the tooth on the set of car keys inside. So it's, it's cool because he's kind of piecing the things together as it goes. It's not an episode where everything's kind of spoon fed, which is what happened in the episode before. So it's from like a fan watching and kind of like being the investigator along with them. It's cool because you get kind of these little tidbits and you're kind of following along. Um, so I don't know. It's a it's a fun episode from that regard for sure. No, I mean I, I remember that watching it for the first time. You know, when you you have that photograph and you're doing exactly the yeah. same thing as Mulder trying to decipher what are yeah. these. You know, the the photograph is just bizarre. There's all these weird images in it, but then he starts fig- figuring out okay. Well, this is his shadow, and he's got long yeah. legs. And what are these white teeth there? Well, they're actually yeah. uh, gravestones. And, mm-hmm. and, and then he that. investigates the guy's, uh, I think it's his mother, um, or, or there's something in his family that has to do with the gravestones. And um, so it's neat because you're kind of staring at the picture as he is, trying to figure out, you know, what, what's happening. Um, and, and then, of course, Scully's interaction with. You know, Schnauz is really good. You know, at the point where he does take her and has her kind of uh, duct tape to the the dentist chair, which this I actually didn't make Garrett rewatch this episode because he's terrified enough of the dentist. <laughs> yes, um, I hate the dentist. 
Yeah. So, like, being in a dentist chair as someone, like, lobotomizes you is not, he's like, no. I don't you know that I can. You lobotomize them. I mean, it's like, you didn't know how to perform in a lobotomy. You just did something weird. Yeah. Did they call okay. it an ice pick lobotomy? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. I mean, he yeah. definitely was not doing them a favor. <laughs> no. But he thought, you know, he thought he was. He was, he truly thought he was helping people. And when he and Scully are kind of having that conversation, is she's, you know, of course, been kidnapped. And she's trying to explain to him that he's, you know, he's not seeing what he thinks that he's seeing. And, you know, he keeps trying to, trying to convince her that he's trying to save her, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I. Isn't that, I think they touched on that earlier that, you know, that wasn't his father like beating his sister or something and he ended up beating his dad. Yeah. Which is why he was institutionalized or something. And so when he does this to women, he thinks he's like saving them from themselves or from the anxiety of the world or something like that. Something weird. Yeah. I, yeah, I, f- I didn't really watch this one ahead of this podcast. And I, f- I think it's, from memory, wasn't it something like that? He thought that his sister had the howlers because she yeah. was yeah. saying that his father had done these things. Yeah, yeah. And, and Scully, yeah. Scully says, "You've made this story in your mind to explain the things that your father did to your sister." Um, and he can't accept that it wasn't howlers. So he can't accept that his parent would have done something like that to you know to a loved one. So his brain as a defense mechanism has kind of made up this this story and unfortunately he's acting on it and killing people or while or severely injuring them right because i'm pretty sure i think if i remember correctly like when we watched this a long time ago that mm-hmm. doesn't unruin hay actually mean uh anxiety or like something like that I think it means unrest, unrest. language yeah, <laughs> yeah unrest. It's, i think it's yeah. German, german i think um yeah it is because Scully reveals that she can speak German. Scully can speak everything, obviously. <laughs> German, I definitely don't speaks, remember that part. She speaks like Greek or something oh. later, or what is she? Well, she needs to. She needs to know Greek and Latin for yeah. medicine school. Oh, okay. Or she said, yeah, because she she says later on. I forget which. Oh, Hollywood AD when she's saying, you know, oh, my Greek's kind of rusty, and you're like, what? That's pretty sexy. I mean, I'd like to hear. I, I guess I'll have to go back just to watch the part where she speaks German. She she well, does. It's not. It's not really a sexy scene. She's no. strapped in the dentist no. chair, yelling at him. Yeah, I then, don't have a yeah. rest. I don't that have a rest. That is like. But then that's, German, the, that's what they do. Honestly, honestly, it's though, funny yeah. it's like a super strong woman. But anytime they don't have a really good storyline in place, she's always the one to get kidnapped and always <laughs> the one to get saved. You know. They need to start counting. Just, it's okay. It's fine. Because, you know, in Castle, there's a count going on. Like, who's saved who, how many times. There's, there's, I'm pretty sure that Scully has saved Mulder as many times, if not more times, than he saved her. I mean, uh, I don't know. Well, how far are you in the global rewatch right now? Surely you can backtrack a little bit and get a tally going? We should. We should totally get a tally. And we should do it by season, because... Yeah, I'm sure it gets better as the seasons go, and it gets a little more progressive. But well, the thing is, is that he's more like reckless than she is. Can this happen? Well, yeah, but well, I mean, a lot of times find because it's drama. Most, well, 
Well, he's, he's reckless <laughs> in the sense that he will disappear and leave her there with an alien bounty hunter. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, we're supposed to be okay with her being like a, a weak or, person that can get caught so easily, yet we're supposed to believe that he can beat up, you know, X? I don't think you so. You know, I will say this, though, for watching the X-Files. Let me tell you how many times Dana Scully has something's happened to her. And as a kid watching it, I'm like, I'll never do that. I'll never not look under the car when I get in. I'll ne- let me. There are a lot of girls that grew up going, you know what? I think I'm going to just kind of check before just randomly walking up to my car and digging in there my purse for my car keys. So. Just, yeah, but I mean, with that notion, then it's the same for when I was younger. Mulder taught me to go recklessly into anything and believe whatever anybody says. And not be able to properly hold a firearm. And if you <laughs> find right. goo on the floor, put your fingers in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Taste, taste random things. But then, like, you know, there was, like, other stuff in this episode that, I, guess, I don't know if people noticed, but she, there was, like, a little bit of a nod about Scully being sick and how yeah. he needed to save her. And that, yeah. for some people, it went completely unnoticed until, you know, Leonard Betts happened. Yeah. But, yeah, and, and it's that thing of, Okay, so are you sick because you actually have an illness, or are you sick yeah. because you're following Mulder, or are you, like what's going on? Are you sick because you were abducted? So it yeah. established but that kind points, of. He points. He points right at right at the, or, the yeah. yeah right at the spot where she ends up having the tumor. Yeah. Hmm. So I mean, he tops her right on that spot. Good going, writer. And of course, no one, no one had any idea until Leonard Betts when that's when it really started. Kind of, oh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I will say though, in in defense of Garrett, and not because I'm married to him, it is kind <laughs> of sexy when she says "unruhe," even though it's kind of a tough scene. Uh, like, it, it is I, a I, little I, sexy. I may be biased too, but I feel like any language that is either German or Scandinavian or like anything that is not, that it's more a Germanic root than a Latin root, it just Mm -hmm. doesn't sound romantic because it's just like a lot of cropped up words that don't quite mix with each other. In our defense, we're American and so anything that is in English sounds sexy. Well, I don't think it's that. Like, I find that when she says scientific words I know nothing about, I'm like, that's a very attractive woman. She's very <laughs> smart. Like, that's hot. And I like that it's intelligence of her, true. but, like, I literally have no clue what she's saying most of the time. I don't think Mulder does either. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> that's if he's even listening half the time. <laughs> okay, next up we have um, an episode that I have been very fond of um ever since i saw it for the first time the field where i died um this is the third episode in glenn morgan james wong's sort of loose trilogy of character-centric emotional episodes uh are following on from beyond the sea and one breath both of those focus more so on scully this is the first one that focuses more on Mulder. it delves into the idea of past lives and how Mulder has always been surrounded by the same people in his lives scully uh, his sister samantha and a new character that we meet in this episode for the first time melissa we'll, we'll discuss that in a bit more detail i'm, I'm sure um 
but I was surprised, you know, knowing all of that, you know, there's an element of shippiness to that, the idea that him and Scully have always been together throughout history. So I was kind of shocked to learn that um, you and a lot of shippers out there aren't really big fans of this episode. I mean, I feel like we particularly, or like, I guess the people at XFN particularly have like a different attachment to this episode too, because we're like big fans of this fanfic called Paracelsus. Uh-huh. And the, the the fanfic is based on this episode. For Only somebody. better. So, only better. <laughs> but then, like, I, I, I hadn't seen the episode in a long time. And every time I thought about the episode, I was like, oh, I have so many fond memories of this episode. But it wasn't really the episode. It was a fanfic. Yeah. And, and then, but at the same time, and I think we discussed this earlier on this podcast, like, episodes ago. Mm-hmm. is that um, a lot of people don't like this episode because the sense of other lives and, you know, Mulder being with Scully in another life but not being... But not so- married to her. It, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of discerning to a lot of people, but at the same time for people, I don't know, like me or like other people that share my same philosophy of life, it doesn't quite create that much of a conflict because... Mm. Well, in the in in this philosophy, you you know that I mean soulmates are not really only there for the sexual part of a relationship or our right. carnal part of a relationship. So sometimes um, you can be a soulmate with your best friend, or you can be a soulmate with your parents. Even though it sounds kind of weird in the way that our society works. Not if your last name is Peacock. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but this is what I'm saying. So you know, I mean, love doesn't really have to stop at you know we're married and have kids, or we're married and have sex, and you know it's 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 that. A higher, you know, sense of belonging, I suppose, in in one circle or another, and that's what it meant for these writers, in my in my opinion, to paint Scully within the reincarnations that they have had in that same circle. Is that you know she really belongs right next to Mulder because mm-hmm. she was she's right been there, his best friend. Like in all of yeah. his past lives, she's his yeah. best friend. Yeah, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there and something that I have been struggling to articulate as we've been doing these podcasts and defending myself as a non-shipper that, mm-hmm. you know, it was never about the romance between Mulder and Scully and wanting to see them be together. You know, they were together and it was evident that they were soulmates in a completely platonic way, you know, from right. very early on in the show. And I, I think that's kind of what you're saying there a little bit mm-hmm. yeah romance means soulmates no love means soulmates and that's a completely different concept that sometimes people don't get and and i feel like a lot of people felt like he was cheating on 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 scully in some degree which is really weird because then he was cheating on scully in another life when they weren't even together as, or not, know, or they were the same sex in many of yeah. his previous lives. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's a polemic episode in that way, but it's at the same time, I feel like what was lacking in the actual episode was that 
um, the case file per se wasn't yeah. so driven that then the emotional part that was so heavy could have a counterpart for it. That's what I think it happened. Yeah, it, it yeah the case file part the I I don't know. I have always really liked this episode, and I think a big part of it is just because that idea of reincarnation and being close to these people that you love throughout various lifetimes. There's something about that idea that was very sort of powerful and attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, just to sort of. Uh, put this into sort of some sort of context for um, me personally. So obviously, I grew up in the UK, and so you know I'm over there watching this American show and learning a lot of American history and things through the X Files. And I now live in Texas, and I have driven through Waco on numerous occasions. And the, I remember the first time I drove through, I was like, I remember they reference Waco and the field where I died. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I did a bit of research on this episode because it is one that I really like and um, I can understand why there's you know, a big chunk of Exiles fandom out there that isn't that fond of it um, from the shipper's perspective. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's quite interesting, the level of detail um, and historical fact that was drawn upon for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much... You guys know about this, but one of the big uh, influences on Morgan and Wong in writing this episode was um, the Civil War documentary um, by Ken Burns. And there's a section in that documentary Mm. where there is a soldier, uh, Sullivan Ballou, I think his name is, who had written a letter uh, to his wife because he anticipated that he was going to be dying in an upcoming battle. And I think the story goes that he wrote this letter and uh, indeed about a week later he was killed in battle. So his name was uh, Sullivan, her name was Sarah, and those are obviously the same names given to Mulder and Melissa's Civil War personas. I found the letter and there's quite a bit of um, quite a bit of uh, stuff in there which could be taken a number of different ways. It is quite a moving letter. Um, but there is a suggestion that they will be together again at some point. And, you know, conventional wisdom would, or the conventional way of interpreting that would be that, you know, once she dies, they'll be reunited in heaven or, or some sort of afterlife. They, Morgan and Wong have taken it that, you know, maybe they would be reunited in another lifetime, which is now what's happened in the X-Files with their version of Sullivan and Sarah and then Mulder and Melissa in the contemporary time. Um, but anyway, there's a bit in the letter where he uh, Sullivan assures Sarah that his love for her was deathless, and even though he might be killed in the war, he would always be with her, he would wait for her, and that we shall meet again. And that is basically the core of this episode, but I think it also says a lot about the Mulder and Scully relationship in that they were together in past lives, they're mm-hmm. together in this life, and presumably any future lives they'll be together so there you go people on twitter criticizing me for not bringing some shippiness into this podcast (laughs) i think i think what you mentioned though and i think unfortunately it's why it's part of why maybe even shippers struggled with it because the you know the idea that he would meet his wife in in a new life and Mulder certainly does 
but it goes so badly. You know, I mean, he, he, he's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to see you again. I'm going to meet you in this next life. He finds her. And in, you know, a matter of days, she's dead. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know, anticlimactic in, it's like all, all of this struggle to get to the next life. And then it's just doesn't really work out for them. It's not really, you know. Maybe it's like a Groundhog Day kind of thing that, (laughs) you know, these people are all interacting over and over again in different lives, but they're going to keep doing it until they get things figured out. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know, and the other um, reincarnation episode back up in season nine, uh, Hellbound, you know, that kind of employs that same sort of theories, the whole reincarnation idea. Mm hmm. And of okay. course, Mulder was married previously anyway, so. Well. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a few yeah. months. We can talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. So, Sanguinarium. Yes. <laughs> a lot more squeamish than I remembered it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, watching so much of this stuff in X Files when I was younger, you know, home and sanguinarium and stuff and i think it you know it basically adjusted me to where i was able to tolerate seeing a lot of gross stuff on tv <laughs> and i have i've lost that <laughs> because the teaser alone where the liposuction was going on i could not, oh yeah <laughs> I, I honestly could not watch it this time i had to turn away from the screen oh no it was awesome <laughs> I mean, it's thing. I mean, this episode in Home, you know, that violence is so funny because it was so controversial when it came out. But now it it doesn't feel that bad at all. I mean, there's so many shows that that use that same, you know, concept, and sometimes even worse than these. And so uh, it's it's still kind of nice because we watched it again tonight, and it was almost refreshing. It was like it hadn't really lost its pull because I mean, some of the older episodes definitely feel dated, but these didn't feel dated at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Sanguinarium was definitely, you know, I don't know. It was, I, I, pretty much all I remember of Sanguinarium is that it's super bloody and that, you know, people are like going crazy because they're being controlled by the, the doctor, you know, of course, who is, who's a witch. And, um, yeah, they're just like murdering people left and right in the hospital and then it's over. (laughs) And then he goes, then he goes to a new hospital and he's wearing a new face. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this episode's got. It seems to have some pretty bad reviews online, which I don't really get. I think it's a pretty solid episode. It's not one of the best, but you know, it's. I, I think it's pretty clear what's going on there. That there's this doctor who's going about killing people, and there's this nurse who is a practicing witch, but she's doing it to try and protect people. And like we learned about the swastika, the pentagram is a protective symbol. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing too is that they went and riled up all the Wicca people, and all the Wicca people didn't like being riled up because they thought that they were really bad portrayed. <laughs> and well, what happens when you irk the Wicca people? Then you know, probably get a hex on them or something. I'll put my money on that. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a decent episode as a standalone. Um, it definitely used some old story plots but i mean if you just watched it afresh it's not that bad at all i mean i think it definitely has some high points for it i can see why people would dislike it i mean witches are 
way overdone, especially in a, a show like this. I mean, they could they're probably capable of much more interesting extraterrestrial or abnormal surreal things. I think it worked out. I mean, I enjoyed it at least. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it's not one of. I mean, it's certainly not one of my favorites. It's not. I mean, it's not like three or you know. <laughs> It's not. Uh, it's not the field where I died. Um, you know, it's 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 okay. There's that lovely moment where they uh, see the broom on her porch and they take it as probable cause. <laughs> it definitely, from like a writing perspective, I mean, it definitely had a lot of leaps of faith. I mean, you you kind of just had to let it be its own thing and not really judge it too hard. But I mean, I think. <laughs> surprisingly enough that the violence kind of helped me with that. I mean, it's, oh, that's despicable and gross, and I want to see what happens next. And shout out to uh, Richard Baymar, who played Ben Horn in Twin Peaks. He's the main evil doctor in this one, <laughs> and he just cracks me up. Just his little mannerisms from even just sitting there when somebody's talking to him. I think he's hilarious. <laughs> Garrett and I have, like, a debate going about musings of cigarettes, Wookiee Man. Um, and so now I'm, like, super interested in knowing how Abby and David feel. Because mainly I'm just curious if anybody's going to side with me or with you. I mean, let's okay. just be honest. I think I can um, make my point clear that they're going to all know. side with me. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Let, let, let David start it out and then okay. we can all jump in. The way I've always understood this is that it is a potential history of the cigarette smoking man. It is not actually the truth. There's a lot of stuff in this episode which directly contradicts stuff that we've either already seen or learned or stuff that happens or that we learn about later on. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, the framework for this episode is that Frohickey has found out this information. He thinks he knows the story of the cigarette smoking man, so he's relaying it to Mulder and Scully. At the end of the episode, cigarette smoking man is there with his rifle. He's about to assassinate Frohickey as he comes out of the office, but he doesn't. He lets him live. Mm -hmm. In the original script, he did kill him. Frohickey was dead at the end of this episode. William B. Davis intervened, went to Chris Carter, and explained that if he'd killed Frohickey, that was basically saying, admitting that everything in this episode is accurate. But if he didn't kill him, it retained that ambiguity that you don't know how much of this is true, how much of it isn't. And as we all know, a lie is most conveniently hidden between two truths. So mm -hmm. some of this is real, some of it is not. Ah, there you go, Tim. Yeah. This is the you argument. You agree with me? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. I, I think, think so. Avi, we'll what are, what's your stance on it? Right. We'll see. Let's see what Avi's stance is first. As for if this is the truth or not, well, is just that any, any. Yeah, is it canon know. or is it partial canon or is it just complete baloney that Frohicky well, like, ran I mean, in a vaccine? <laughs> 
this is the thing. I have, I have, you know, I have a hard time saying that this is not canon. But at the same time, Frank went and said that he doesn't think this is canon. And I have a hard time saying no to Frank. But at the same time, this is the first time I've ever said, I don't believe you. Because I really <laughs> do think that this is canon. And, and this is not because, like, I feel like, okay, fine. This could be, like, just some bullshit that they're coming up with. And, mm -hmm. oh, it's just a story and blah, blah, blah. But, like, what's the point in entertaining some fantasy if, in, that, in reality, it's, it's told from his point of view? And that's the problem that I have with it. Is that what we're seeing? We're seeing from 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 Spender's point of view. It's not being told by Frohiki. So that's where I don't agree with the whole <laughs> spiel of it. Well, see, being this is the way that scam. I argue it is that okay. Frohiki is actually reading the story from that, the magazine. From the magazine that Cancer yeah. Man actually wrote. And right. that he elaborated on that story for for obvious reasons to tell, you know, he wanted to be a writer and he thought it'd be fun to do and he could escape from the responsibilities that he had had previously. Mm -hmm. It was his way of becoming human again. And I agree uh, with you so far. So, and okay, so, so are think... you suggesting that this story that uh, Frohiki is telling us in this episode is actually the story that... Uh, it's the, yeah, it's the, yeah. That magazine? It's the magazine. I believe it is it's because the the, before Cancer Man puts away his sniper rifle, um, he you know I forgot exactly what he says. He's like, I could kill you. I could kill you, but I, I won't. He said, but, I won't. but not, but not today. today, right? Not which today. is supposedly the last line of the story that he wrote. Yes, and I feel like and so. I feel like that he actually says article. Right. I feel like he mentions article, and so you kind of put two we and two together. That the story that he wrote for the book was about killing aliens, and it was about a you yeah. know a secret agent that did all these things. But remember, so, remember when he picks up the magazine and reads the story, they've changed it. It's not the story he wrote. Yeah, well, they, they changed, changed the they ending. Changed the ending. Yeah. So the ending could be a, a number of things. I mean, he could have actually killed you know, JFK, but See, not this, anything else. This is where Garrett and I, okay, go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. I think it's more likely that he was involved in killing some people, but that a vast majority of it is obviously hogwash that he has written for, you know, put a gain or whatever. I, uh, okay, go ahead. I'm like, I'm about to like jump in all over you here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really? I mean, cause well, I mean, we know that, um, Deep Throat actually did kill the alien and that he felt bad about it. So, I mean, we know that story is true. Yes. And then, but I mean, it would be hard to believe, uh, you know, that it's this Forrest Gump story that, I mean, he's the greatest thing that ever happened and he could control every little action that ever happened and that he got off on that power. But I do think that he's, especially since he's standing there with a sniper rifle, that he literally did kill somebody at some point. See, I, I don't think he did. I, I don't think he killed anyone, and here, here's why. I think in the story, he writes himself as the protagonist. He writes himself as the guy pulling the trigger. In reality, I think he was the guy that hired the guy that pulls the trigger. He is the guy that, you know, sets up the... We already know he set up the patsies. But I think he writes himself 
as the trigger guy, as the, the strong one, the one that's brought in to do these things. And I think in, in many ways he is, but I don't think that he's the gunman. I don't think he's the person that actually pulls the trigger. And it's why, in the end, when he's kind of having this disagreement with Deep Throat, and he says to Deep Throat, I haven't, I haven't killed anyone. I've gone my whole life, and I'm going to go my whole life without killing someone. And Deep Throat says, well, who, you know, who's the liar now? I don't think that's because Cancer Man's actually not killed someone. I think deep in Deep Throat's mind, Cancer Man having someone else kill someone is still Cancer Man being a murderer. But I think for Spender, he believes he's not the trigger man, which means he's not actually killed someone. Um, and that's why they flip the coin for, you know, Deep Throat ends up being the one that has to, to kill the alien because they've flipped the coin and uh, before it even like practically gets out of his hand, Cancer Man's shouting heads, you know. <laughs> I think that he made himself, I think all the events in the story are true. I think every bit of it actually is true. I just think that he has embellished his role in it when in reality he's probably the guy just behind the trigger guy. Um, That's what I think. Garrett disagrees. um, But... I mean, he's not the greatest guy that ever lived. I mean, we know that he gave No, no, I don't think so at all. I think he's... I think Deep Throat... I think what amazes me about it is that he, Cancer Man believes he's not a murderer. He, you know, and Deep Throat's like, well, who's the liar now? Because Deep Throat knows that whether he pulls the trigger or not, he's still the murderer. But Cancer Man can't see that. He doesn't see that side of it. Um, I think that's true for most villains. Most villains would never accept that they're actual villains. Yeah. He's got to justify it some way in his brain. But I think. Right. But you think at some point he's actually killed someone. Well, I mean, again, I think there is some truth when you write stuff like that, that some of the truth is going to come out. It's just okay. what parts. And I mean, yeah, I think so he's you're of the capable. mind that he did some of that, but maybe not necessarily all of well, it. Well, that I'm of the mind that if he did any of it, he had to have killed JFK and set up Oswald. Yeah. If he killed anyone, I might actually believe you. If your line of thinking was true, I would only believe it in that when he puts the photo of Tina and one-year-old Mulder in his desk, um, maybe that's kind of a nod to, you know, of course in the beginning when he's young and he's in the barracks with a young uh, young Bill Mulder and Bill Mulder shows in the picture of Tina and his one-year-old son. Of course, Bill Mulder doesn't know that it's not his biological son at that point. Um, but he says, my kid's first word was JFK. And, of course, later, Cancer Man puts the photo of Tina and, you know, Fox, baby Fox, in his desk. Um, of course, Fox's first words are JFK. So, I don't know. Maybe if you're correct and he did actually kill someone, maybe it was just JFK. You see that he takes, you know, he starts smoking directly after that. Um and when he, you know, thinks oh, he's going to be this great writer, he he stops smoking. He crushes the cigarette packs. But then when he goes back, you know, and finds out they've changed the ending, he takes the smoking again. So yeah. I, I think there's a direct connection there to that particular story, whereas the other ones are very vague and aren't, you know, supported by any real evidence of any kind. 
not that that's really heavily supported. I mean, it's definitely speculation, but um, that's the way yeah. I'd like to see the episode. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. Fru Hicking being killed at the end because it. I just there's not a lot. I mean, if it's completely hogwash. <laughs> then killing him would be absolutely nothing because, I mean, you wouldn't shoot somebody that's just telling lies about nothing. I mean, he doesn't have any real information. So I think clearly there's something there. I don't see how it could be everything uh, or that it's all true. Because, I mean, it definitely doesn't line up with some of the other um, episodes as far as the storyline. Continuity would be all messed up. I don't know. Well, I, doesn't, I mean, doesn't I, he say later to Mulder in another episode, I've watched presidents die? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Okay. So maybe. I think he said it before now. Is it maybe in uh, One Breath? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure, but uh, I feel like it's already been in the show up to this point. Yeah. I was just wondering, Hmm. I, I, I kind of like the idea of the story that we are told here is, is, um, cigarette smoking man's own version of events where he is mm-hmm. maybe got a more powerful persona than he really actually does. Right. And I was just go you know, going through the timeline here, we obviously start off in nineteen sixty three, JFK, all the way up to the present, nineteen ninety six. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort do we know um when he and Cassandra divorced? Is there any sort of mm-hmm. timeline? I've been Googling like I can't yeah. find a date for it. Don't know. But you know, through yeah, that idea of um, you know him sort of retelling his life story, the way that he wants it to be remembered, there's that whole sad section in there, you know, in 1991 where he's having the meeting on Christmas Eve, and yes. you get the idea that he's all alone and stuff, and right through to where the book is about to be published, he writes a resignation letter that yeah. he's ready to put yeah. this life behind him. <laughs> And, you know, that's all around the same sort of time where you know, the, the two-parter that uh, started this season, you know, I was saying in that podcast that um, you get the idea that there's some sort of power struggle there between Cigarette Smoking Man and X. And he does seem to be at, at his lowest at that point. And it's only because X turns out to be a mole that he gets mm. all of that power back. And, you know, maybe there is something that's happened in the recent history that um, has sort of dulled his power dulled his flame to that Mm -hmm. point where he is on the verge of just throwing it all in and he wants to go out thinking that he could have been somebody really good but uh not today yeah i think he's felt kind of bound by duty a lot of the time uh i mean i think that's an interesting point because i mean it really does tie back to that conversation he had with jeremiah smith about um you know what is freedom and is it good for you you know, and it's a, a lot of his character has been up to that point, you know, about control, about controlling the masses so that he can provide them happiness because they are incapable of doing it themselves. Right. But that writing that story was kind of his way of giving himself a chance to be human again and like have that freedom. Yeah. That he's kind of denied himself. So, I mean, it definitely ties back to that period. Yeah, this is a great. Um... This episode, and of course later on in in season seven, um, I, I think these two episodes that really you know focus a lot on him really focus on him as 
human, you know, as someone that has, um, you know, dreams. And I mean, obviously he wanted to be a writer and publish this book. And every time that he gets, you know, those letters basically telling him that, you know, sorry, I mean, he gets the one letter that's actually really nasty, um, where they're making fun of him, like, this is the worst thing we've ever read. You feel really, really terrible for him because he's he's just trying to kind of live his dream. Um, you know, a dream that maybe he had when he was younger. Um, you know, of course, his, his father died before he was born. His mother died of lung cancer before you know, he was like a year old. He's raised in these different kind of foster homes. I mean, this is someone who has really not had family and not been able to do what it is that he kind of wants to do with his life. He's kind of been, you know, put on a path because of his past experiences. So uh, it's it's sad to see him like this, you know? And it's sad when you see him later on in season seven kind of doing the same thing with Scully. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that he's, I, I don't know if it's so much sadness because in a lot of ways, especially with, taking into account that the story you're seeing is actually his story. It's written like a lot like Lex Luthor in the sense that it's like a rags to riches or a rags to power. I mean, he has extreme power from a point where, you know, he had none, you know, growing up. I think that's a, an interesting dynamic, but I mean, one of the best scenes in this episode is when he's complaining about life being like a box of chocolates. When a homeless guy is sitting next to him, eating a box of chocolates, yeah, and he's so philosophical about how life sucks, and you know all these stupid nutty pieces that break your teeth, and you, know, you have all these wrappers. But the homeless guy has no complaints whatsoever, eating that box of chocolates. Yeah, he's like, and happy he's just going plan. about it. Yeah, yeah. And it's just funny because you, if you take that scene just at what's being said, you'll miss that connection. I think that's being made there. That he's just very pessimistic. <laughs> he's not mindful at all. You know, I mean, yeah, he has so many options, whereas this homeless, this homeless man has absolutely none and is perfectly content you know, with his lifestyle. With his u- useless brown paper wrappers. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're not useless to him. I mean, he can eat yeah. them and he can be like, I have this awesome box with some stuff in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I wish that, I, I love Cancer Man so much as a character that I really wish that we had more episodes that delved kind of more into him, you know, I mean, I say I don't Why? <laughs> because the mystery is part of the appeal. I mean, I don't want to know anything about most of the characters. I, I actually find it more appealing not to know very much. I mean, cause you can speculate and speculating is part of the fun. I mean, that's yeah. part of the, the hidden aspect. He can't be his real self and he can't have the relationships a normal person would have. Yeah. I mean, some of the extended characters, they really don't have to do, so much because I, I find the syndicate so interesting because I don't know it, like nearly anything about them so I create a much more vivid world for them than probably is what actually happened which is why you don't want to see more of Cancer Man's existence no I mean I'd like to you imagine pretty much that only he get a struggling it. character that is trying to do the best he can in the best way he can but his evilness or his desire to is based on you know just human fear i mean he's yeah. trying to protect people but at the same time he can't really do it so he's had to manipulate things you know from in the shadows and right. it's a lot harder because i mean he you know i mean it's a life or death situation i mean he doesn't want to end up 
like all the other people before him that have died. You know, yeah. so I mean, he's got to play in the shadows a lot more. So I mean, I think delving into that and giving more of his characters or, you know, going to any of the other syndicate members, that would have been a mistake. We well, yeah, even think- going back to um, One Breath, you know, up till that point, Cigarette Smoking Man has seemed to be this incredibly powerful, ominous figure. But even in that episode, the illusion of power is shattered a little bit when Mulder goes to his apartment and he's just all on his own in this tiny little room watching this movie, this old movie on his TV. Mm-hmm. And Mulder just sticks the gun in his face. And you can see right then that, okay, this is really a, a pathetic man. And it, he really does, he doesn't have the power that we assume that he did. You know, he, he does have a lot of power yeah. in sort of controlling things, but he doesn't have his life together. He is not the... Um, all-powerful figure that we thought he was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely true. And I think that's part of the interesting thing about the struggle. I mean, he acts like he's all-powerful. And and a lot of that story in this episode was about him being, you know, he can control, you know, world events. He can't control other things. He can't can't be with the woman he loves. He can't do all these things. Um. So, I mean, there's obviously vulnerability there. And it's funny because he has his crap together, you know, with everything in the, you know, the big world picture. But in the very small world picture, he's definitely, he struggles. That makes him so much more relatable, too. I mean, it makes it an intri- a more dynamic character. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I don't think we need to know, you know, what kind of toothpaste he brushes his teeth with in the morning. Or <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know, you know, where he's born in his mom's name i don't i don't care about any of that i mean you know you just need the little glimpses that are you can control the amount of information so that it's more powerful okay okay <laughs> no i do think that you know if frohiki had died in this one it would have maybe made everyone think that everything that you see here is canon exactly as you see it. Oh, yeah. It would have. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I don't think that that's the case at all. Yeah. I mean, part of me, you know, is like, oh, the Game of Thrones effect, if they killed him, it would have been like, oh, that was totally unexpected and amazing. But then the other part of me would have, I would have legit thrown the TV out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Broken stuff would have been horrible. (laughs) Yeah, you can kill Langley. I mean, I like Langley a lot. But I mean, <laughs> at least like you. I really love Fires, you know. But I mean, <laughs> number two, and I, I would have been hurt. <laughs> I'm not saying that I wanted him to die, but I mean, if somebody had to go, it would have been him. <laughs> I mean, it would have been beautiful. They could have had the, you know, the gravestone with his glasses on top. They could have all wore you know, Ramon's t-shirts. It would have been a wonderful next episode. But when Franco Hickey <laughs> dies, what do you do? You're like, oh, I'm sorry, the midget toad died, and let's dance around his grave? I mean, I, there's nothing there. Wow. I have no idea how we are going to follow up that, so let's <laughs> put a, a stop to the episode discussion there, and let's move on to the quiz portion of the program. All right. Question one. What are the names of the Peacock brothers? Oh, crap. Uh, I'm not this good. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely not this good. 
I don't even remember the name of one of them. Um, hold on. What do you mean, hold on? You're not Googling. <laughs> you do it. I am totally. No, I don't know. I want this one. Edmund, George, and Sherman. See, I knew George, but I thought I was just really. So it was just common. Those are really normal names. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't remember off the top of my head, but when I saw yeah. them, I remembered Edmund. That's the older yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think his name gets repeated maybe twice, and the others just get <laughs> the one time. Oh my gosh. Okay, up next I have two questions from the field where I died. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so, first one is, um, what is the name of the cult? Uh, is uh, it Seven Star Cult? Uh, seven, seven. Yeah, I think it is. T Temple of the Seven Stars. Temple of yeah. the Seven Stars is correct. <laughs> I hate you both. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Okay, another question from that episode. Um, Melissa has a few split personalities. We know that uh, Sarah is uh, her past life from the Civil War. We know that Sydney is one of her uh, other personalities. We also meet a third one, a young child. Do you know what that personality's name was? No. See, I thought no. Sydney was. No, I don't. Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't remember this. No. Nope. Her name was Lily. Uh, Although, to be fair, Tiffany did get the question correct because I asked, "Do you know?" And she said, "No." So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> All right. Question four in Sanguinarium. For what reason were the different victims chosen? Oh, crap. Hold on, hold on. No, I don't remember this. Why were those individuals targeted to be killed? Well, he had... He had an addiction to, like, beauty, but... I don't know that that's the answer, per se. <laughs> he had an addiction to what? To, like, he was infatuated with, like, beauty, like, addicted to beauty, wasn't he? I guess, yeah, but that's not the reason. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't think that was the reason. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I pass on this. Their birthdays coincided with witches' Sabbaths. Uh, oh, the last, oh, that's right. The last victim was born on Halloween. True. Right. You're... Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I know. <laughs> okay, question five is the last question today. What was the name of the magazine that Cigarette Smoky Man's story is published in? Ah! Ah! Fuck! Ah! ah. Uh, um, something weird. It's uh, <laughs> uh, remember the name. Uh, something. Uh, what if you know it? Romana Club. Romana Club. 
Romana Clef is correct. Oh my god. Yeah, there he goes. Are you serious right now? I just watched this episode like two hours ago too. There's actually a really, f- based on the conversation we had earlier, there's that there's the bit there where he goes to get the magazine and the, the yeah. newspaper vendor is going, um, yeah. are you going to buy that? Although I don't know why anybody would buy that rag or whatever. And it's yeah. got these like swimsuit models on the cover yes. and stuff. And I was just thinking, yeah, it's just the kind of magazine that Fro Hickey would buy. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Well, thank you very much, Avi. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you. Awesome. Yep. And uh, I will be back uh, next week with uh, Holly and Kava, and we're going to do Tunguska and Terma. Until then, I can kill you whenever I please, but not today. Probably would run a million miles Lose my little mind